This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia believes in uplifting individuals and organizations that work to transform our ecological, cultural, and spiritual relationships with each other and our common home. We thank Calliopeia for their ongoing support of creative projects that we believe in. To learn more, visit calliopeia.org. Welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Mariam Kaba. What we saw happening was that people were trying to make an appeal to the state for protection. And the state then turns around and criminalizes the people who are appealing to it for protection and also decides which kinds of survivors are perfect victims and are the ones who we ought to be caring about, the ones who we ought to put up on pedestals. And then the rest of us being, quote, non-perfect victims, then get the full power of the state turned against us. Miriam is an organizer, educator, and curator who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the founder and director of Project Nia, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration. She has co-founded multiple organizations and projects over the years, including We Change Genocide, the Chicago Freedom School, the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, Love and Protect, and most recently, Survived and Punished. As a researcher in residence at the Barnard College for Research on Women, Mariam Kaba works with Andrea Ritchie, fellow researcher in residence on New Social Justice Institute Initiative, Interrupting Criminalization, Research in Action. Mariam is on the advisory boards of the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial's Critical Resistance, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The Nation Magazine, The Guardian, The Washington Post, In These Times, Teen Vogue, The New Inquiry, and more. She runs Prison Culture Blog. Miriam's work has been recognized with several honors and awards. Miriam, thank you so much for joining us today. It is really an honor to be speaking with you, and we are so looking forward to diving into your work more together. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Much of your work currently revolves around the movement for transformative justice. But for listeners who aren't familiar with this work, I know that restorative justice and transformative justice are often conflated. To begin, I'm hoping we can differentiate the two, and as I understand it, restorative justice looks at a single situation where harm has happened and seeks to find a resolution amongst the community impacted by said situation. 
whereas transformative justice looks at the system and conditions that enable harm to happen in the first place. So can you begin by sharing why you're working for transformative justice and how TJ takes us a step further by looking to create a world beyond the one we have now? Sure. I like to make sure that people really understand that restorative justice is how I came to gain an understanding of a possibility of repairing harm. I started engaging in thinking about restorative justice before I took on really thinking about PIC abolition, prison industrial complex abolition. So my kind of interest in restorative justice predates my politic around prison industrial complex abolition. And I say that because while restorative justice has been picked up in the world much more fully since I started getting trained in the mid-1990s and in some ways has been co-opted by the system, the roots of what restorative justice was about are still incredibly useful and valid. Restorative justice is focused on the importance of relationships. It is focused on the importance of repair when those relationships are broken when violations occur in our relationships. It is very much interested and concerned, obviously, in community because it asks a question about whose responsibility is it to actually meet the obligations and needs that are created through violation. So it asks the community to step in fully to be less of a bystander and more of an actor in trying to repair harm. And finally, it's very much a framework and an ideology and a way of living that is concerned and interested in making sure that we remain in right relationship with each other, with the land, with the environment. So that's an expansive view of restorative justice. Over the years in practice, people have focused very much on an individualistic model of addressing harm using restorative justice modalities and restorative justice practices. Among those are people often will say things like, I'm running a circle, therefore I'm doing restorative justice. That is ridiculous. It's just just a tool that people use within a larger framework of restorative justice, which asks people different kinds of questions. So I like to not fall into like binaries too much, like it's this and or this. It's many different kinds of things to many different kinds of people who use it in many different kinds of ways. How I came to focus on transformative justice really was that you were right in the sense that transformative justice takes as a starting point the idea that what happens to us in our interpersonal relationships are mirrored and reinforced by larger systems that also shape our relationships. And that if you can't really be thinking all the time about the kind of interplay between those spheres, you end up in a position where you're too focused on the interpersonal and therefore cannot transform the conditions that led to the particular interpersonal forms of harm and violence that you're dealing with at the moment. So I like it because it feels like 
more expansive framework and ideology for me than restorative justice currently as it's being practiced is, and is being practiced by a certain segment of the population, not everybody, because there are many restorative justice practitioners who acknowledge and even act in the way that I'm talking about when I talk about transformative justice. The other thing is that the histories of both frameworks are just different. They come from different places. They come out of different communities, even if there are overlaps. And so I think it's important always to think about where things come from and where things are rooted in order to understand what they are. So for me, transformative justice is really just about trying to figure out how we respond to violence and harm in a way that doesn't cause more violence and harm. It's asking us how we respond in ways that don't actually rely on the state or social services necessarily if people don't want it. It is really focusing on the things that we have to cultivate in the world so that we can prevent future harm. What do we have to have? We have to have things like healing and accountability and things like that. Transformative justice also is kind of militantly against the binary and dichotomies between victims and perpetrators, but rather tries to think about the world as more complex than that. That sometimes in a particular situation we're victimized and in other situations we're the person or the people who perpetrate harm. That we have to be able to hold all those things together. And so I always like to think about transformative justice as a practice and an ideology and a framework that might be something we can rely on, just one of the things we need to rely on to get us towards liberation and towards freedom and towards, for me, a PIC abolitionist horizon. Wow, Marian, thank you so much for explaining that in such depth. Now, in thinking about the carceral state, it becomes clear how perverse the system is. And That's not just in context to the ways in which we define justice through a punitive lens, but also the policies and culture within prison and our growing obsession with detention facilities. Now, in preparing for this interview, I came across stories in which prisoners in Illinois have been denied eye surgery based off a one-good-eye policy. Simultaneously, it was revealed this month that the United States currently has the world's highest rate of children in detention. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about where you see this urge for punishment stemming from. Who benefits from the inhumane treatment of people across the board? Yes, a question about punishment and where it stems from. I think it's a a question that lots of people have are writing and have written over the years dissertations and books about in terms of philosophers and people who think about politics and kind of morality and all of those things. Often people think about punishment as rooted within religion and many forms of religion that really talk about punishment and vengeance that various gods reap on humans and others. So there's such a long history in terms of people's thinking about punishment. I read a book by Brett Story, and she talks about prison and the landscape of prison. And Brett is a geographer and really thinks about the way that the prison is more than just the building that we think about when we think about the prison, but the way that the prison 
grows into the landscape and grows from the landscape into these spaces. And it's really kind of a beautifully written piece that follows a film that Brett Story put out. And the reason I preface it is because she makes the case that she thinks prisons, rather than coming from or centered in our desire for punishment, are actually instruments to punish. So they create punishment, right? So it's an issue of directionality as to whether it is the mindset and the our thoughts and our kind of morals around punishment and vengeance that drive the making of the prison, or if it's the other way around, if the institutions are what create and reinforce punishment in and of themselves. So I was reading that recently, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's been making me think anew about what I have thought about how punishment works or doesn't work. And I have always maintained that there's something within us as human beings that when we are hurt, often we turn to wanting to hurt back and that we spend a lot of time thinking about retribution and vengeance because that is conditioned in us, both as I mentioned, through religion and through how we grow up in the culture and through how we think about being in right relationship again with each other, that the punishment is, feels like a necessary ingredient towards being able to get back to right relationship in some way. And transformative justice kind of challenges those values quite a bit. And it's hard, I think, to hold because I too am conditioned in this very same culture and, you know, grow up in these same spaces and was punished myself as a child. Very hard to think of what else to do when violence or harm occurs in the world, but to punish. That's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe, it permeates so much that when somebody chooses to do something else, we sometimes react violently <laughs> towards that person who doesn't choose to punish, who says, actually, I want to try a different way. Then it's like, you aren't holding up your end of the bargain here. You know, what are you saying about what I think about my values if you refuse to go after this person in a punishing way? So it's really complex. It's really complicated. It's something I do think a lot about on a regular basis. I'm working actually currently on a resource. You know, it's tentatively titled Interrupting the Punishment Mindset. And it's intended to be a resource that can be used by teachers to work with younger people and helping them to think about punishment differently, to move from a focus on punishment to a focus on accountability and consequences. And I'm struggling quite a bit with it. I've been working on it for a long time now, and it's been a struggle because it's so hard to find materials that are the opposite of the thing that we do, which is to punish. Much of your work challenges us to reframe our understanding of perpetrators of violence, as well as to some extent, violence itself. And approximately half of the people currently imprisoned in the U.S. are serving sentences for violent crimes. So it feels obvious that we need to talk about how and why violence is being used in our society and how we should contextualize violence more broadly. And then within that, how does this reframing also aid us in understanding 
what has been referred to as the abuse to prison pipeline? I guess one of the things I want to say up front is that when you are a victim or a survivor, you know, however you feel that you want to identify, it is painful to be victimized. It is painful to be a recipient of any form of violence. We have to acknowledge that up front. So whatever I say is not in any way to minimize the experience of violence. I myself have been a victim and a survivor of violence. I feel very specifically on a regular basis that I want to always uplift the harm that's caused and not minimize that in any way. So just to begin with that. The second thing that I really want to point out from your question is it is true that half the people who are currently incarcerated in our state prisons are there for violent crimes of some sort. And that's also a complicated thing because what gets termed as violence versus what doesn't, all those things are judgments and political decisions and don't get applied equally, right? So I've been thinking quite a bit about the importance of talking about what it means to use violence and what it means to be violent. And a lot of times, people who cause inordinate amounts of harm are not considered to be violent people or to have done violence. And by that, I mean people who are polluting our rivers through toxic waste, through corporate crimes, people who are signing off on sending thousands of people off to kill other people in wars all around the world, are not considered criminal. We barely talk about the violence of the military industrial complex as a form of violence that we need to be accountable for in some way. People who are on the anti-war side try to make that case on a regular basis and we're very much drowned out by other people who don't consider those things violent because for them, they may consider it, quote, self-defense or righteous or any sort of kind of thing. But I want to hold those up because those harm millions of people in real ways. And sometimes people lose their lives through those kinds of harms. And yet when Johnny down the street takes a gun and shoots another person, that's held up as the pinnacle of all forms of violence that we ought to then take Johnny and lock Johnny up or worse, kill Johnny under the state's auspices of capital punishment. That is the worst of the worst form of violence. And I wonder why that is and how that makes any sort of sense at all. And I'm not arguing here that all those folks who cause inordinate harm should also be locked up in torture chambers. That's not my argument. But it is a thought that I wonder why certain kinds of violences get weighted very differently based on who causes it and what we ourselves are willing to tolerate because of it. So as someone who thinks about violence quite a bit, I also think about the contextual and situational violence of people, for example, who are survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault, who when they are protecting themselves against the violences they've been receiving, decide to fight back resist, kill somebody as a result of it in self-defense, 
and yet are punished for long periods of time and end up locked up for sometimes the rest of their lives because they used violence to end the violence that they were experiencing. We're just unable to think about the contexts that surround violence, ask ourselves how we might seek accountability. We just need a lot more thinking about all of this. Mm -hmm. It's such a good point regarding who is doing the violence and how that is taken into consideration with what we deem violent and what we're willing to put up with, like oil companies or mining companies who poison millions of acres of waterways and soil contamination that leads to cancer and deaths and how that isn't necessarily deemed violent behavior in this dominant culture. And when those corporations enact this type of harm, they're harming so many people and non-human kin, the soil, the air, and somehow we put more pressure on one person potentially being violent. And and not that I want to, now that I'm saying this out loud, I don't want to necessarily... Not at all. Right. Yeah, no, I don't hear you saying that. And I'm not saying that either. But I do think we do have to be honest and have conversations mm-hmm. about the kind of scope and the level mm-hmm. of violences mm-hmm. that occur all across the board. And then why our responses to those are so different. Mm-hmm. Why act so differently when these things happen in different kinds of contexts. All of it has to be accounted for. All of it has to be attended to, right? It's just that for some, it's incredibly punitive and they may lose their lives. And for others, they don't even get a fine, you know? For others, they make billions of dollars. Not only do they not get a fine, they literally become more powerful. That's right. They Mm -hmm. benefit. Absolutely. And so I just think that to me, we need much more thinking, much more just responses to all of this. Because Ultimately, for me, what harm is, is that harm engenders particular needs that must be met, that must be taken into account, that must be responded to. All forms of harm engender needs. And we have to then figure out as a community, as a society, as a world, how are we going to attend to those needs? Who is responsible for attending to those needs? How are we going to be in a position where we stop using violence ourselves when violence occurs to then cause more harm? Those are big, big questions. And they're questions, obviously, I don't just think about. They're questions that millions of people are thinking about all the time. Yeah, and thinking about how to respond to all the time.
An area your work seeks to address is the ongoing criminalization of survivors, which initially sounds like an inherent contradiction. So can you speak Mm. to what this entails and how discrepancies between the application of self-defense laws contribute to the criminalization of survivors? And how does Mm -hmm. an explicitly pro-criminalization approach to addressing violence actually further disenfranchise survivors? Thank you for asking that question. It's, uh, I think, probably my life's work in terms of the thinking that I've had. I came up in anti-violence organizing work, and I continue to be doing anti-violence organizing. And I've done that in multiple contexts, within institutions, outside of them, against them. And one of the lessons, and I don't want to get into too long of a history lesson for folks, but one of the lessons we have learned is that sometimes our movements, as we are seeking particular kinds of things, are offered other things instead. And I pull up the issue around gender-based violence, particularly the Violence Against Women and Girls movement of the 1970s, where people were clearly and rightly so saying, is this is inappropriate that in particular at the time they're talking about women and girls, that women and girls are being killed, harmed with impunity in their homes, in their workplaces, in their communities. And there's just not, there's not a just response and there's not a cultural kind of accounting for that particular form of violence. And folks were asking for shelters and were asking for counseling and were asking for resources for survivors and were asking for a whole series of things. And the state offered mostly money to do more law enforcement, to get the cops trained in how to intervene better, quote unquote, in domestic violence, to pass mandatory arrest laws, to do all sorts of things within the criminal punishment realm and kind of skim off of all the other things that people had asked for. And folks took that money at the time because they needed the funds, because they thought this might be a way to transform the culture for multiple kinds of reasons. Along the way, many people, particularly women of color, were saying, we should not be going down this road. This is going to really end up kind of backfiring on us, on us. Those mandatory arrest laws will be used against us, women of color. And sure enough, what we saw were many more people, you know, women of color who were getting caught up within the criminalization net that got widened when the movements to end gender-based violence got into a partnership with the criminal legal system, with law enforcement. And so that's a very simple sketch. It's much more complicated than that. There were contestations and contesting forces all along the way. But over the years, something that has now been termed carceral feminisms came into being where people believed that you could end violence by using violence of the state. So you're going to end gender-based violence that's interpersonal by using the state to adjudicate, evaluate, and then punish those particular harms. And what we know is we live in a profoundly, deeply unequal society with social oppression forces like racism and classism and transphobia and sexism and all these other things at play. So that means that if you're engaged, then the folks who are going to be most likely to be marginalized and punished are the people who are already marginalized and who are already oppressed under those forces in the system. So that's in part what we saw happening was that people were trying to make an appeal to the state for protection, 
And the state then turns around and criminalizes the people who are appealing to it for protection and also decides which kinds of survivors are perfect victims and are the ones who we ought to be caring about, the ones who we ought to put up on pedestals. And then the rest of us being, quote, non-perfect victims then get the full power of the state turned against us. So, you know, there are cases and examples like Marissa Alexander's case recently in Florida, trying to defend herself from an abusive husband, shoots a warning shot into the air to ward him off, ends up being the one who gets arrested, ends up being the one who goes to trial, ends up with a 20-year mandatory minimum sentence. There was thankfully a kind of a community participatory defense campaign that came up against that verdict and tried to work with Marissa and her family to get her freed. And eventually she was, but that took years and it was a, it was a struggle. So these are ways that you can see the criminalization of survivors and the criminalization of survival that takes place because we're in partnership with these systems and institutions that are in and of themselves inherently racist, classist, you know, transphobic, all that stuff together. Mm. Wow. Now, culturally, the justification for the carceral state exists in our understanding of safety and the conflation between safety and security. This is a topic that we haven't really discussed much on For the Wild, but feels so important not just to the realm of abolishing the prison industrial complex, but for anyone who is vested in ways of knowing, being, and co-creating community. Can you talk a little bit about your understanding of safety? How can we all contribute to lessening our insidious reliance on incarceration and surveillance? And furthermore, how does a new understanding of safety impact our understanding of justice? Yeah, that's a great question. A few years ago, I worked with my friend, Sarah Jane Ree, who was a photographer on a project called Community Safety Looks Like, and people can go and find that project on Tumblr. And we basically asked community members what they thought community safety looked like for them. What would make them feel safe? And of course, you would not be surprised that, you know, cops and prisons and all that stuff really never comes up for the folks when you talk to them and ask them directly what would make them feel safe. But those are what we are offered. You know, those are what we're offered as, quote unquote, the ways that we're going to be kept safe, that these institutions are what are standing in the way of us and complete and utter chaos and lawlessness, which of course we know is ridiculously untrue. So I think about all of this as it relates to safety. We really gain safety through building relationships that are strong enough to allow us to be able to take accountability when we cause harm. And that's a really different way of thinking about safety in the world. And when I say take accountability, I mean take responsibility for what we know we did wrong in order to be able to repair that so that we can get back in right relationship with each other. And I know a lot of people feel, I don't know, maybe discouraged about the possibility that people will take accountability because it's so hard in the world to see examples of that in a broad way. At least, you know, it's not popularized. You know, we don't put that up on TV. We, we show the, all the ways that people are unaccountable to each other. I think also we know just with ourselves how hard it is to change our behavior ourselves. Mia Mingus says this all the time, that if you can't 
work on taking accountability for the small things, then you're not going to be ever able to take accountability when big things happen that you absolutely have to take accountability for. I use the term take accountability regularly because people always say, I'm going to make this person accountable. And you're not, you're never going to make someone accountable because accountability is an internal resource people have to use to be able to decide that they've done wrong and be able to transform and shift that. That's a mirroring in some way of the current state and the way that we are operating, which is that the state is incredibly coercive, right? And forces people to do things that they then don't really do. And we end up continuing the harms that occur in society. So safety is very much rooted in having everything that we need in order to be able to live dignified lives. You know, and that's where transformative justice is so critically important because it tells a story about the need for us to have the conditions in place that would allow us to do the things that we wanna do around transforming harm. So that means that you have to have a living wage, at least at the base. It means you have to have universal healthcare to be safe. It means you have to have a clean environment to be safe. You have to have a good school for your kid to go to, to be safe. Safety is an expansive concept that is beyond the kind of individualistic violence, interpersonal harm framework that it's so deeply shaped in. And I know because it feels most immediate, like you're afraid of getting killed and you're afraid of being hit in the face by somebody or being stolen from. So that's a visceral sense of your personal safety. But safety is within a broader context. And if we could get all the other stuff that I mentioned broadly correct and right, and be in right relationship with those things, all of this interpersonal harm that occurs will be so diminished so that then we won't even know the kind of world that we can be living in. The world will have been so transformed that our relationships to each other are necessarily also going to be transformed. We can't even know where the kind of virtuous circle of that could end. And that's the work, I think. At least that's the work I'm committed to as a both and. Yes, attending to the harms that happen in our interpersonal relationships because we're human and those will continue to happen, but also having this much more expansive view of safety. Security is so focused on the weaponry and the tools that exist to lock people out, right? Like the gates and the alarms. And those are things that are the illusion of safety. The real safety comes from our ability to be able to get what we need to live dignified lives. Mm, so powerful. Gosh, Miriam, I feel like you just sliced right through so much false conditioning of this mm. dominant culture. I think about just how the United States has the most quote-unquote powerful military in the world and all of the energy we put behind and the and our taxes and so on and so forth behind this violent mm -hmm. way of quote-unquote protection but yeah. yet it's not protecting us from the ones who are actually doing the real harm so it's, absolutely uh, <laughs> also the other part that i think about on a regular basis is one of the reasons why we absolutely have to do away with the apparatus of the criminal punishment system is because the forces of oppression are actually maintained and reinforced through that system. So if you're anti-racist and one of the things you're trying to do is end white supremacy, you have to end the apparatus of the criminal punishment system. 
If you're a feminist and one of the issues you have is about resisting domination and uprooting oppression, then you have to get rid of the apparatus of the criminal punishment system, you know, because what do those things do? They oppress and they maintain domination over people. So like, it's so clear to me on a regular basis that like we cannot hold the current apparatus of the criminal punishment system that's maintained through these social forces that we're trying to uproot and transform and change so that we can all have more well-being, so that we can all thrive, you know? And rather than just people that are trying to survive every single day, that we actually have an opportunity to thrive. And without kind of uprooting of these systems, we're not going to be able to thrive. And therefore, what we need to do is all of the ways that these systems are reinforced and maintained, you know, that the punishment system and other systems that are oppressive are maintaining all of these oppressions. We have to dismantle those in order to be able to build something different that would be much more, as my friend would say, my friend Shira would say, probiotic rather than antibiotic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for that. I'd love for us to transition into a conversation around how our current policy and movements are being formed, which is to say Mm. that they sometimes stem from very strong and powerful, albeit individual voices. This topic Mm. feels especially difficult because there should never be an intent to negate any survivor's desire to see justice, but at the same time, Mm. It feels really irresponsible to apply one's personal quest for justice to an entire population as a sort of standard. So where is the balance between having policy and response that is both less personal but is still informed by survivors? Oh my gosh, you're asking me the questions today (laughs) that are great, hard questions because um, I keep threatening to write an essay called Abolition is Not About Your Fucking Feelings. And I, at some point, (laughs) I some point wrote that in a tweet on my Twitter page and got so much blowback from folks because people felt like I was insulting their ability to feel what they want to feel. And I was like, that's really not what I'm saying. The concept of like the personal being political as like a basis for a lot of feminist organizing in the past is so true and yet it is so fraught at the same time. Because what it's not saying, and I think what sometimes people kind of want it to be saying is that how I personally feel then should be made into policy. And we can't operate in a world where that's true. We shouldn't want to codify our personal feelings of vengeance to apply that to the entire world and how we're going to basically find a just way to adjudicate, evaluate, and address various forms of harms in our society. You know, and, and sometimes you find the criminal punishment system has all these contradictions, right? Because on the one hand, the state sets itself up as the ultimate arbiter of, quote, fighting for the victims, right? But nowhere in those proceedings does the, quote, victim's real interest in terms of, like, 
if the victim doesn't agree, for example, with capital punishment, the state still supersedes that and decides, yeah, we're still going to kill this person on your behalf, right? We're going to do that, the state says, because it's to protect the entire community. So in that instance, your personal feeling doesn't matter at all. But when the state wants to justify its vengeance, it'll say, we're doing this in the name of the person who was harmed. Yet when we go to court, it's the state versus the person who caused harm. Nowhere does it say Miriam against this person that harmed her, right? So I barely get a chance to even talk. If I'm not called to the witness stand, I don't get a chance maybe to even at the end of the proceedings give a victim impact statement. Sometimes that happens, sometimes that doesn't, right? So it's just, the whole thing is filled with so many different contradictions. and. We have to govern the world not based on just our personal desires and our personal feelings. We have to have a politic and a set of basic values that we as a society are governed by. Otherwise, how are we going to be able to move in the world? We're not going to be able to move in the world if that's not the case and if that's not happening. So it's so complicated. And sometimes our feelings aren't actually aligned with our values. (laughs) So our express value might be, well, I don't believe in capital punishment. Okay, like I may have that value. Like I don't believe the state has the right to kill in my name anytime, you know, ever. That's my value. And then something happens to a close friend of mine and my feeling is they should kill this person. We are often at a point where our values don't align with how we feel. And in part, that's kind of why we have a situation where we we're supposed to have a community that can hold when these things are happening so that our feelings don't end up governing how we're going to basically live in the world for everybody, how all of us are going to be governed together. Um, So that may sound convoluted in how what I'm talking about right now. I'm thinking as I speak, but also I've been thinking for a long time about this in various kinds of ways. And so it's a question all the time. It's when people say, well, this person was really harmed. And I'll say, yes, they were really harmed. Absolutely. And I wish that had not happened. And I also want consequences for that. I just don't think punishment is going to get us there. And I also don't think that using extreme violence to address extreme violence ever works. I think that's just vengeance. And sometimes I remember watching this movie years ago. It was a terrible Nicole Kidman movie with Sean Penn in it. I I, I even forget the name of the movie, but Nicole Kidman's character says at one point, vengeance is a lazy form of grief. And I was like, whoo, I really, I just had to like think about that. It, It stuck with me. I mean, the fact that this thing came out years ago, but I still think about it, it really struck a chord in me, right? Because it's like, we need time and space to grieve when hard things happen, when bad things happen to us. We need that grieving. We need that space. We deserve the support that every part of support that we can need. Survivors and victims should get multiple supports from the state beyond and not even mainly prosecution, right? Like, How about paying for people's counseling? How about paying for people to be able to take a trip out of the country so that they can heal or begin the process of figuring out how to heal? We have these victim compensation funds, supposedly, that are so convoluted, so bureaucratically heavy, 
so exclusionary in terms of what you can get for it and how long it takes. Why not make all that much more available? The state pays right now over $120 billion to just cover the cost, $80 billion for incarceration, another $40 billion for law enforcement of various kinds, right? What if we use that money to actually provide what people needed after they were harmed or their families needed after somebody in their particular family was harmed? How come we can't think that way? It's a question that really evokes so much for me. So I thank you for asking it. And it's, it's something I continue to be thinking about on a regular basis. Yes, us too. And I thank you for your your passion and your dedication to this. And I'm also really curious to hear more about community accountability. And I know you touched on accountability earlier, but specifically, how does it work in terms of addressing domestic and sexual violence? Because these are certainly two areas where it would seem trickier to convince people potentially of a transformative justice approach when the harm we're talking about is such an intimate violation? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Actually, the modern aspects of community accountability work are rooted exactly in communities of color, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people who were overwhelmingly feminists, who started talking about harms that were occurring in terms of interpersonal harms related to sexual harm, sexual violence, domestic violence. These were also obviously folks who were gender non-conforming, trans folks who were not either able to access the state for quote unquote redress or did not want to access the state because they knew they were already marginalized and might then be criminalized. And in some cases, it was also where people didn't want to access the state, right? So they couldn't or they did not want to. And so the question was, well, how do we intervene? And so a group called Insight, Women and Trans People of Color Against Violence, began in the early 2000s to codify things that our communities had always been doing in various ways, which was to solve issues that arise, to find a way to be present when somebody was harmed, to figure out how to transform the person who caused the harm, have them encouraged to do that transformation work, right? So this was just a way to codify what many in our communities had been doing for many generations before in countries where there was no state in the way that we think about it in the United States to intervene or to protect or to, you know, police. And so if people are interested, there's a wonderful guide created by Mimi Kim, Rachel Herzing, and others from Creative Interventions, which is like 700 pages long. It's online. You can go to Creative Interventions to find it. And they just spent several years doing community accountability work in the Bay Area, in California, and then took all their lessons that they learned and put it together in this toolkit, which they've gifted us. That was about 15 years ago, I think, 10 years ago at least, that they gifted us this resource to use in our communities. So I will always say this too. I think there's something to really be said, and people should be thinking about this more seriously, which is a lot of people get mad when we talk about community accountability. And they're like, well, this doesn't work. And I'm always like, first of all, I don't know what you were doing, but it wasn't community accountability work. It was something else. Like often people will use terms 
with things they didn't understand or don't know how to do or didn't really practice. Or I did a circle with a person. I'm like, that's not a process. Since when did you, you talk to a person once and they transform their entire lives? It doesn't work that way. Think of yourself, put yourself in that position and think of how hard it is for you who decide to do something basic, like give up sugar and you cannot stick to it, right? Because it's hard to do. It's hard to change our behavior, right? So I always think like that comes up a lot for people. Another thing that comes up for people is like, you're telling me I have to act a certain way. And I'm like, I'm not telling you, you have to act anyway. The fact of the matter is, is that more than 50% of people who are harmed, like very badly harmed, by the way, never contact law enforcement at all in the first place. And so that means they prefer nothing at all, as my friend Danielle Sarad says from Common Justice. They prefer nothing at all rather than what we currently offer. That's a huge number of people who are harmed, but don't seek any sort of redress from, quote, the state. The thing that is being offered as the end all be all, the only way to transform any harm, right? So that's already the case. So I'm always like, why are you upset? Why are you so invested in being upset with people who are trying something else in order to get the redress that they feel like they need when over 50% of the people don't even avail themselves of the system that you're fighting so hard to protect? and that you're fighting so hard to keep entrenched, right? So even at that list of 50% that do go in to the system, 50% of those folks don't even make it to the point at which there would be a prosecutor sending their case on to petition in the court in any sort of way. Like, so they're not even going to grand jury. And then by the time it goes to grand jury, another 50% are out. They're not even going to be in a position to be able to go to a trial. And since we know that 98% of the people who are in a situation where they might want a trial are actually going to plead out and not go to trial, that's 2% of the people in that list who actually go to trial. So by the time you get to a place where we talk about somebody serving a prison sentence, so many people have not been served by that point that we got to find a different way to be able to address harm. And since for me, as an abolitionist, What I care about are two things, relationships, and what I care about is how we address harm. And the reason I'm an abolitionist, a PIC abolitionist, is because I know that prisons and policing and surveillance cause inordinate harm. So if my focus is on ending harm, transforming harm, then I can't be pro those institutions that are death-making and harmful institutions because I'm actually trying to eradicate harm not reproduce it, not reinforce it, not maintain it. So I find that we really have to just realize that sometimes our feelings and our our kind of really valid sense of like wanting some form of justice for ourselves gets in the way of actually seeking the thing we want. And so for me, I'm constantly talking with folks, you know, I only facilitate community accountability processes within my communities. I don't, you know, I'm not getting paid for it. I'm not a paid facilitator. These things are important. We all have to gain skills within our communities so that we can hold harm, transform it, and come out the other side. Because that is so critical. And so few people are having the harms that they experience attended to at all. At all. Most people get nothing. So community accountability is like, can we offer something?
Now to dig a little deeper into the connections between the prison industrial complex and the police force, I want to bring in the 1994 Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act into conversation. I learned that the bill provided funding for 100,000 new police officers and allocated nearly $10 billion for prisons. Yet recently, the Government Accountability Office concluded that less than 2% of the overall 26% decline in crime from 1993 to 2000 could be attributed to additional police officers. Rather, overall Mm -hmm. decreases in crime during this period were due to community programs, job opportunities for young people, and even preschools. So how can we understand the relationship between the PIC and the police? The PIC is not separate from the police, right? Policing is part of the prison industrial complex. So they are part of the same complex. And so I think liberals have an easier time imagining a world without prisons than they do a world without police and policing. And that is in part due to the conditioning that we all have. And as my friend Paula Rojas has written, that the police are in our heads and in our hearts in a way that prisons may not be. Because we see the notions of the quote, friendly police officer and officer friendly. We are taught that from very young age. If you are lost, go find a cop. Young children play cops and robbers at a very young age. They're locking each other up. We are in a position where, again, the police are in our heads and hearts. People think of the police as their neighbor, They think of the police as their Uncle Joe, who's a cop. It's very hard for people when you have conversations with them to get past the kind of individual bad apple ideology of how we're going to, quote unquote, reform police and policing is through that way of individual implicit bias training and body cameras and these things that are all about the individual level. When what we all know to be the case is that policing has always been inherently violent it will always be inherently violent. It has always been unaccountable. It will always be unaccountable. If we don't think about completely dismantling the thing, we're never going to be able to, quote, reform it in the ways that people imagine reform to actually lead to less death and less harm. And so I think I would just leave it there because I do think that the issue of police and policing is so fraught for people in this country and everywhere, frankly. I don't know a place where cops aren't inherently violent. In some places, in some parts of the world, cops don't carry weapons, but even that's getting overrun now. And so I I don't know. I think it's, it's something that we have to contend with, and it's part of the importance of working towards the dismantling of the institution rather than the propping up of it or the bandaging of it, because, quote, reforming it when the thing has always been the way it is just means you're going to end up with much of the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really hearing that, that basically anything that's talking about reforming is a false solution. I think reforming in the way that people talk about reforms, you know what I mean? Like, I think you can imagine a thing where there's a term called non-reformist reforms that Andre Gortz kind of proposed and uh, Ruthie Gilmore has kind of popularized in the U.S., the concept of non-reformist reforms, which are reforms that you put in place you don't then have to come back in five years and dismantle reforms that don't expand the reach of the prison industrial complex, but rather reforms that take away its power. 
So there are places to go as we're chipping away in an intentional fashion with a strategy where reforms can be employed that actually shrink the power of the systems that you're trying to dismantle. And you have to be very kind of constantly asking questions about that in order for you to be able to employ reform. So yeah, so abolitionists absolutely engage in reform. We just don't engage in reformist reforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like any policy or reform that's pouring more money into the violent institution needs to be a red flag. You know, any anything that we see coming at us through bills, if we're seeing more money being poured into the police or the prison industrial complex, that needs to be a red flag that we can understand that that is a false solution. And it's just strengthening corrupt institutions and not benefiting the communities. Yep. Also, in preparing for this interview, I came across a lot of your dialogue around the push to address domestic and sexual violence in the 60s and 70s through non-carceral forms and then comparing that to movements of today, specifically liberal feminist ones, which are incredibly punitive. Something that I believe you've referred to as carceral feminism so I, I, I'm just wondering, why do you think this move towards the carceral state has happened? Yeah, I mean, it's seductive. The, the state doesn't stay put and the state is dynamic. So anything that's going on that the state thinks that it can have some sort of power over, it's going to try to incorporate it. It's going to try to co-opt it. That's just the way that it operates. And so to me, it's not surprising at all that feminists and others who were trying very, very hard to, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, who were trying very, very hard to really end violence against women and girls in that particular conceptualization. They weren't focused on gender nonconforming folks at the time or trans people at the time, but harm was occurring. And so it's like, we have to figure out some way to end that, to come up with solutions. And the law enforcement, as I mentioned to you, offered money and that was a way where people could actually then supposedly impact this problem that they saw in the world. And so this is always the thing. It's, it's the seduction of funding that is needed to actually address real problems that then takes those things and transforms them and mutates them into more problematic behavior. And this is in part what happened. And the person who I think is the person who started talking about carceral feminisms, if I remember, it might be Elizabeth Bernstein, I think in the context of thinking about anti-trafficking work, uh, who started talking about carceral feminism. Like I mentioned before, I gave a little bit of a definition of what that term is. But, you know, many people have good intentions. And I just think sometimes your intention and the outcome aren't aligned. And I think that happened. I think for some people, they did want a very punitive response. They intended the response that they got. They intended the outcome that came out of it. But for many people, it was just like, we need a way to transform this situation that is terrible and we need to find a response. And these people are offering us some resources to address that. Mm -hmm. So I'd be remiss as we're talking about the prison industrial complex to not talk about prisons in relationship to climate change and I'm thinking about this in terms of two areas, really, one being the climate-related catastrophes incarcerated people face semi-regularly, whether it be overheating, mm -hmm. flooding, 
and failure to be properly evacuated, and then the second in terms of climate refugees globally and the continuation Mm -hmm. of semi-permanent detention facilities and the weaponization of migrants through narratives that position them as threats worthy of punishment. So I'd Mm -hmm. like to open this conversation up to you in any way you see fit, or perhaps to ask you more specifically why it's vital to have anti-prison organizers and abolition workers listen to in the movement for climate justice. Oh my goodness, so important. So, so important. So I have to say that it's only recently in the last, I would say, 10 years, maybe, or even, I mean, maybe eight years that I've gotten much more curious about climate change and more than just curious, started to try to read more to inform myself about what was going on. And in part, it was because many of my friends who are PIC abolitionists are also people who are very concerned about climate and climate change. And there were many kind of things that come up for me around that. And I just read a piece, um, gosh, I, I would love to remember the title and who wrote it. It was in Jacobin actually, and uh, about how prisons and the new Green Deal need to be thought through together in various ways. And so I was thinking the other day about how the U.S. in particular, through this current regime that we're in, has been really trying to turn away climate refugees, right? The people who recently in, you know, the U.S. Virgin Islands, like uh, Bahamas, the U.S. was like actually actively trying to turn away people who were coming who were climate refugees into the country. So on the one hand, I was just thinking this is kind of a white supremacist immigration policy, right, that it's being put into action. But it made me start thinking about just within the country itself, the way that climate has caused havoc. So, for example, what happened when Katrina came in and people were not willing to evacuate the prisons, right, when the hurricane was coming. So leaving prisoners to quote the elements right? And not including them within any sort of emergency disaster relief plan. So the disposability of those folks who are locked up being so glaring, the lack of concern, like they could just all drown and we don't even care about it, right? I was thinking about that. I was also thinking about the concept of disaster, which we're hearing more and more about in the press and the media. But the fact is, The very concept of climate disasters, they don't necessarily impact everybody in the same way. We're vulnerable in very different ways, right? Like if we can't escape, get in a car, go further inland, then we are at the mercy of not just nature, we're also at the mercy of the human policymaking that doesn't care about us at all and thinks of us as like basically fodder for what is going on, right? And so I I was just thinking about all of that and how that connects directly to disposability. And we think a lot about disposability when we think about people who are incarcerated and the ways that we just don't consider their well-being at all. And in fact, the ways that prisons make people sicker in every possible way exploits human frailty to harm more and more people. There's so many places of overlap. I have been really thinking about that. I've been thinking that we really do need 
the environmental toxicity of prisons and then what is actually happening in terms of environmental justice. Sometimes these things don't connect with each other. People don't see them together, but they absolutely are co-constitutive of each other as well as influenced by each other. And the impacts will have so much negative effects on people who are vulnerable already. I think this is so important to think about. Mm -hmm. Now, as we're beginning to close, I'd love to talk about how fatalism is not an option or how we can understand abolition as the antithesis to fatalism. And I've come across so many beautiful proclamations in preparation for this interview that abolition is not just about dismantling, disavowing, and resisting. It's an exercise in imagining what exists beyond our current world, what possibilities and relationships exist in a world without dehumanizing incarceration. So I'd just like to ask you personally, how do you see abolition changing everything? And what work can we do? do every day to abolish these systems of oppression as we commit ourselves to a world without dehumanization? Yeah, so I say this often, but I just think that Aji Lord talks about despair being a tool for your enemies. I think that um, fatalism is the same. I don't have the luxury, I feel like, as a person in the world who doesn't just care about my own survival, but also loves many, many small people. I call them small people, but children in my life who are not my own, but are deeply loved by me. I can't imagine a fatalistic viewpoint serving their ability to live. I want them to live. I want them to live beautiful, long, happy lives. And I think that I just can't, support a notion that like there's nothing to be done to be able to improve the world and improve our own likelihood to survive whatever is to come. I've said it often, but fatalism, I think, abets premature death. I think it's death for the marginalized. I also think like, I'm not going to be here to see the end of the world. I'm pretty certain of this. Okay, like I'm pretty certain that that's the case. So I feel like I might as well do my best to fight now. What do I lose by trying for a better world than this one? What do I have to lose, right? I should take the bet and still try to move forward to creating a better space for ourselves. I just don't think the rest of us can afford fatalism. Mm -hmm. And I think we can't afford to embrace that. And so I'm going to be with the rest of those folks who are in this fight for the long term and are trying to do what we can to keep hope alive as Reverend Jesse Jackson taught us. But I'm not talking about optimism for the sake of, like I'm not an optimistic person at all, but I am profoundly and deeply hopeful. And for me, that means that I believe in every single day waking up and making a choice to continue to fight for something better than what we currently have. And I want to do that for myself, of course, because no organizer is doing work in an altruistic way. We are all doing work because we recognize that we are interdependent, that we need each other profoundly and desperately, and that we have to fight 
in order to be able to preserve and then improve on and then build together. No space and no room for fatalism at all. And I really, really want people to recognize that like, you're not going to be around for the end of this long-term human project that's been going on forever in our lifetime forever, right? Like the forever that we live in, the forever of our lives. We're not going to be around to see the end of it. So we better fight now to make sure that it's better for the people who come next than it is this moment that we're living in. So yeah, I think I'll just say that. Okay. So for my very last question for this episode, I know you've often mentioned this while covering Centoya Brown's clemency, but I'd like to ask you about what sort of community support is needed for criminalized survivors of gender-based violence following their release. Oh gosh, so many things, so many things. Centoya is a is a kind of unique case, right? Because she had a national, international, you know, set of supporters over many years who pushed for her clemency. Folks raised money to support her while she was inside. People have raised money for her to be able to live now. She just has a book out, so she's touring that. Her life is so different from so many, many other criminalized survivors who, when they get out, if they get out, don't have a support system to help them integrate, often for the first time in society. I always talk about the myth of reentry, you know, the notion that people who end up incarcerated were often not integrated into society in the first place. They were in the margins of society before their incarceration. And when they come out, they're even more marginalized. And so I feel like our work is to try to draw people into our circle as they come home, to offer soft places to land for people and to do our best to do mutual aid and mutual support so that folks have what they need to be able to survive on the outside. It is not easy to do, especially if you've been locked up for many, many years, to try to figure out what everything looks like now after you've been gone for 10, 20 years is hard and difficult. And if you were cut off while you were on the inside and had little support from family and friends and didn't have anybody sending you letters, you just are lost when you come out. I've heard that from so many people and comrades who came out and felt so bereft, so lost. So Centoya is, you know, an exception in that sense, that she has a lot of support, newly married, a lot of other things going for her, but most people don't get that. So one of the things I would just want to flag for people if they have a chance is that you mentioned that I co-founded a formation called Survived and Punished, and we have a New York affiliate that I'm a member of. And right now we're raising money for giving some commissary support to some incarcerated survivors. And we have a PayPal pool. If you follow Survived and Punished New York on social media, Facebook or Twitter, you can find the link there. And that's a concrete way of supporting people on the inside to get what they need. And then look for groups. Um, A New Way of Life in the West Coast is a group that creates homes 
for formerly incarcerated women in particular and gender non-conforming people who are coming home so that they have a place to come to that's welcoming, that will help them, that'll be a soft place to land. And a house in Omaha, I found out, it's called Leiden House and it's sponsored by Black and Pink. And they have a home where they're going to be welcoming up to five LGBTQI formerly incarcerated people into that space. Because housing, it's just impossible for everybody right now to find affordable housing. Forget it, you know, whatever your status is in life. But when you are a formerly incarcerated and criminalized person and trying to find housing, it's even more difficult. And so that puts you in a position of being housing insecure, leads you into the pipeline of criminalization. And being housing insecure when you come out leads you back into that very same system. So just a few thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. My mind and heart are so full from this conversation, and I cannot wait to re-listen to this episode again with all (laughs) the other folks who will be tuning in and just being so awakened, and your passion and your dedication, they stoke the fire of, I'm sure, so many people, and definitely myself, so thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this. And I'm always so grateful for having opportunities to talk on podcasts because they offer you such a kind of expansive opportunity to delve into issues that, you know, sound bites don't get at. So I'm really appreciative uh, that you took the time and that you all reached out to invite me to join the conversation. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from Wyclef Jean, Jason Marsalis, and Irvin Mayfield. I'd like to take a moment and give a bow of gratitude to our production team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Stores, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, and Melanie Younger.